welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. And a couple months ago, if you've been tuning into the show, we took you down to the South Pole and we told the story of Daniel Burton, the first man to ride his fat tire bike all the way um, across Antarctica to the South Pole. Today, we are headed north to the land of polar bears, moose, mountain ranges, grizzly bears, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, We're heading up to Alaska and we're going to tell you and share the story of Steve Cannon, um, an Iowa adventurer, Iowan adventurer who's done all sorts of stuff and we'll get into it. He's ran around Lake Michigan. He's ran across Iowa. He was a rock climber at one point. Um, but we head up to the Iditarod, the iconic race in Alaska as Steve, um, just weeks ago finished riding his fat tire bike, the thousand miles from Anchorage to Nome. And I am so incredibly psyched for this podcast. Um, Steve's concepts of adventure are spot on. If you're listening to this, this is Like he describes why we need adventure in our lives to the absolute T. Like he is incredible. I want to, I hope I can have him back on the podcast at some point and just pick his brain. Like I feel like I could talk to Steve for hours and hours and hours. He's just um, an incredible human. And I know we barely even got to scratch the surface of the story. Um, Along with that, I'm psyched. Like I did a rod is iconic that race is exactly for whatever reason and maybe just based off of how i grew up when i think of adventure or wilderness i'm thinking of alaska i'm thinking of the the north right like the yukon in canada and heading up into alaska the mountain ranges the forest the frozen rivers um the like I said, those animals I already mentioned, the moose, the grizzly bears, like that is what I imagine when I think of a pristine wilderness. And the Iditarod is what I imagine when I think of big time adventure. Um, and the race is just absolutely incredible. It's a thousand miles from Anchorage, Alaska to Nome. And over that thousand miles, you're crossing some of the most isolated wilderness in the whole entire world and you're taking on challenges that are have to be incredibly intimidating um you're facing some of the harshest weather imaginable uh and just that isolation by yourself like trying not to let those worried voices sneak in um, because they you're always constantly dealing with that so i'm super pumped to share this story with you guys uh we we chat a lot at the beginning about Steve's um, Steve's previous adventures, but we really don't get into the story too much, uh, which I really want to do at some point in the future. So we'll talk about his adventures running around Lake Michigan, uh, and then we really and running across Iowa, and then we dig into the whole Iditarod story. Um, but the thing I love most about doing this podcast is really trying to understand the mindset of adventure and what it brings to our lives and why we take on these challenges and step up to obstacles that if you told, you know, if you tell someone when they're in the comfort of their own home, they're like, that sounds 
that sounds insane. You want to go out in negative 50 temperature with the craziest windstorms you possibly could ever experience. And you're like, yeah, sounds like a great time. Um, so yeah, let's get right into it. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out all of our other episodes of the like a Bigfoot podcast. Um, please follow Steve on any of the social medias that expand your possible.com. Uh, or I think on Instagram, it's X like X P A N D U R P O S S I B L E. So expand your possible on there. Um, he mentions at the very end, but I'll mention it here. If you enjoy him on the show, he has a free, he's, he's a writer, also an author, a motivational speaker around the Des Moines area. Um, his book 40 days, which is about running around Lake Michigan is available free. Uh, you can get a free PDF of it, a free download of it on his website. All right, guys, I'm super pumped for this one. Let's get right into it. This is the like a Bigfoot podcast number 143 with Steve Cannon about biking the Iditarod. All right, guys, today I am so unbelievably excited to chat with Steve Cannon. Um, Our mutual friend, Calvin Johansson, kind of, uh, you know, made me hip to what you're doing. And then I saw you were going to bike the entire Iditarod, and I was just completely mind blown. And I'm like, I got to reach out to this guy. I'm glad you did. Any friend of Calvin's is a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Well, and the way he described you to me was he was kind of like, this guy is like this, the biggest, one of the biggest adventurers in the state of Iowa. And I'm like, dude. Iowans, I'm all in for Iowans, you know. Saying a guy is one of the biggest adventurers in Iowa, I think you'd have a better claim to fame if somebody said, This guy is the greatest corn grower in Iowa. <laughs> I don't I don't know uh, I don't know how much weight being the one of the best adventurers in Iowa carries, but I'm doing my best, man. <laughs> well, here's what I was kind of thinking of, because I actually had that same thought this morning kind of where (laughs) (laughs) where i was i i I challenge your marketing to be like all right everybody tune in to meet our featured guest steve cannon one of the great adventurers of iowa (laughs) hey man (laughs) well i was thinking so we're gonna totally hype up iowa later no no problem because it's a great state but you are right where i was like as an adventurer as someone who goes out and explores these wild lands you are kind of a fish out of water in this in that state whereas in colorado it's like you know there are quite a bit of people who like you know make their living in the outdoor industry or like head out to these you know crazy adventures throughout the world or you know what i mean no doubt i love my time out there and I owe much of my adventurous spirit to that state. I I moved out there to follow my first outdoor passion, which was rock climbing late in my 20s. And it was there that I started to see and be exposed to some of those people you're talking about. Yeah. And it's this whole like adventure community. And at times it's great because it's very supportive. Um, But at other times it's almost like, 
it can get like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, like competitive or, you know, especially now with like social media, you'll go on social media and it'll be like all these posts from like people in the outdoors, like 24 seven. And you kind of for a brief second, get that like jealousy as you're sitting in your, you know, like for me, I'm a teacher. So I'm sitting in my classroom. I'm like, Oh man, they're all like exploring. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. I hear you. But so there's like positives and negatives. So I think being like an adventurer in Iowa, like that, that actually like speaks to me quite a bit. I'm like, Oh, that actually sounds pretty cool. Yeah, man. Well, I'm certainly, I'm certainly proud of the state. I think the best people in the world live there. 100%. I'm proud of, I'm proud of the adventures that I've taken. I owe a lot to those people that you're talking about that, have inspired me to get off my ass and, (laughs) and chase, you know, and, and chase or pay attention to that adventurous spark that I have, that I think all of us inherently have in us. So, um, yeah, I certainly far from, do I make any apologies on Iowa? I I try to, I try to, uh, talk up Iowa as often as I can. I love the place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you talk about that adventurous spark, like, can you kind of dig into your story a bit? Like what sparked it for you? Cause I think you're right. Everyone has that aspect of them, but, but not everyone really intentionally like goes after it. Well, I think everybody's story is unique. I was about to say, you know, I, I come at this from more of a unique aspect than maybe some do, but, I don't know that that's accurate, but I, I will I will dig into it, unpack it for you a little bit. I, I wasn't a five-year-old kid reading Louis L'Amour books or staring off into the sky wondering about faraway lands, uh, far from it. Uh, I grew up in a broke-up household, parents getting divorced, uh, and that led me down a real unhealthy road, kind of screw the world kind of thing. And uh, it continued well into my 20s, spent uh, time in jail two different times because of uh, drunk driving. And I was, I was probably one more mistake away from either spending my life in jail or killing somebody because I got behind the wheel of a car. But I got right to that line and finally got in enough trouble where I said, you know, if I don't straighten this out, this is what my future is going to be. And so, uh, my first adventure and still to this day, the scariest and biggest one I took was to look myself in the mirror and say, you got to quit drinking, man. You got to, uh, or you're not going anywhere. And, and, uh, there's a whole leaving your identity and, all types of things tied into making that decision and sticking to it. But I was able to stick to it and it allowed me to get a clear mind. And one afternoon, a friend of mine took me to the field house, the old field house in Iowa city, Iowa. Uh, And there was a 20 foot long bouldering wall. And I climbed onto that thing and, probably for the first time in my life, I really, uh, I really fell in love with something that had to do with the outdoors. And, uh, and man, it just, it, 
it bit me hard enough that a year later I was throwing into jumping into my vehicle with, uh, you know, a thousand dollars to my name and headed to Colorado Springs to live in a guy's basement and eat ramen and climb rocks until the money ran out. So that's that's where it all started for me. And, um, and then from there, um, you know, eventually, although I enjoy my own company, the rocks don't, uh, they listen real well, but they, they don't talk so good. (laughs) Yeah. And so as you know, living out there, every weekend there's a 5k or a 10k or something and everybody runs and it's there's a real social aspect to it so i thought well shit i'll try to go meet some people so i ran a 5k in manitou springs and on saint patty's day and hated every minute of the 33 minutes it took me and finished the thing and was like that's just stupid (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and so if you would have told me at that point that someday i'd run 11 marathons in a road across Iowa or then run 40 of them in a road, uh, be the first person to run around Lake Michigan. I'd have been like, you've drank too much green beer, dude. Like not only is that not me, that doesn't even sound possible, but that's how it starts, man. You yeah. follow that spark and you do one thing and, uh, then you do another and, uh, it can become a pretty damn amazing journey. Yeah. Yeah, it's that progression, the, you know, the little small steps along the way that you don't even notice when you're taking them, you know. That's it, man. One step at a time. Anybody listening to this, anybody anywhere can accomplish whatever their dream is. Yeah. If you just stick to that little one step, one step, one step, three, four weeks, a year down the road, you're like, I can't even see where I started. I've come so far. That's awesome. That's super cool. Well, you know what's funny is – I'm pretty sure the field house rock climbing wall is the very first and I'm I'm not like a huge rock climber, but I'm pretty sure that was the first like experience I've ever had doing any of that thing. Cause I remember learning how to tie the rope at the field house, which is funny. Oh that's, that's <laughs> awesome, man. There's not a lot of people I mean, I don't know how old you are. It dates me a little bit because I don't even think that that rock climbing wall is still there. It's probably newfangled in somewhere else. Dude. But- yeah, it, that was. the new one is crazy because it was I'm 32. So it was right when I left college, they built this giant rec center right by the river. And there's like a three story rock climbing wall now. It's pretty, Yeah, awesome. man. I know that. I know that rec center since now I was home for me again. I've had a couple of my nieces and nephews go to college there. And that rec center is sick. And you're right. That wall, you know, ours back in the field house day was, 20 feet long and seven feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now there's, you know, you got to learn how to belay and do everything else in there, but that's cool that, uh, that you know where I'm talking about. Yeah, man. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's awesome. So when you moved out here to Colorado and you started rock climbing, what, what were some of your like favorite places? Just real quick. What were some favorite places to rock climb? Yeah, I, I lived, uh, not far, eh, I'd say probably five, six miles west and north of downtown Colorado Springs. So I was going to the Garden of the Gods all okay. the time. And, uh, and we, took, uh, we took one trip out to, I think it's Durango, um, where there's the, uh, it escapes me now. There's just big, like, multi-pitch climbs out there and, 
uh, famous routes and all of that kind of stuff. We never got into any of the big stuff, but it was cool to go out and see some guys and gals taking down big wall routes and saw some, saw some dude soloing, free soloing this 300 foot face. And I just, you know, it just was like blowing my mind just, the way people were getting after it out there. It was freaking awesome. Yeah. It's it. I cannot wrap my head around it. Cause I'll go to El Dorado Canyon and just yeah, go that's, for, that's what I meant. Oh, that's okay. Meant. We went yeah. to El Dorado Canyon. I had, I had D stuck in my head and I, I mean, Durango goes <laughs> all the way South. Right. But yeah, yeah, El Dorado Canyon where we went, that's exactly where all the famous routes and, you know, Lynn Hill and John, you know, the different books written about it. Yeah. That's where we went. Thanks for filling in the blank. Yeah, man. Well, and just, you see the people, like all the way at the top and they're tiny little ants on this giant rock face. And <laughs> I'm just like, what is going on? <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So what I, I do want to hear a bit about running around Lake Michigan too. Um, what was the route? Like, did I, did you kind of have to like create the route yourself and what was that experience like? So, you get the opportunity going around the lake there's pretty much highway all the way around that thing and so for the most part i was usually just on the shoulder running against traffic if it had a nice gravel or paved shoulder or on the grass some places you'd get lucky and you'd be able to duck into a state park and there'd be 20 miles of trail right along the lake uh but yeah, you were you're pretty much able with a uh, without too much navigation to just sort of run around the lake. Some places you get into Milwaukee or uh, you know, and there might be a bike trail that goes all the way along the lake and that sort of thing. But for the most part, you're just shuffling along, uh, you know, the shoulder or throwing on the grass and going along there. And uh, other than there's a bridge that goes between i think it's lake michigan and uh lake superior ah, no lake huron uh on the northeast corner it's like five miles long it's this incredible bridge but we couldn't run across it they only shut it down once a year for a race so i did i did cheat a little bit but it was the best i could do so yeah. when we went across it in the rv i ran in place while we were on the rv and <laughs> told them to go like two miles an hour and People were honking and flipping us off, but I thought I'll try to try to stay as true to it as I can. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Was there any moment? <laughs> was there any moment where you just were like, you were just pissed off at Lake Michigan? I don't know. I just think like to have a lake always on your left or always on your right, whichever way you were running. I think at a certain yeah. point, I would just get frustrated and be like, "Why is it still there?" <laughs> you know. Uh, it's a great question, and I really thought you were going to go to the question I've been getting all the time about the Iditarod, where someone says, was there any time when you just thought about maybe throwing in the towel? And you, you, I just start laughing when I think that that's what's coming, because it was like 18 times a day I'd have that thought. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, Lake Michigan, we nicknamed her mom because really early on it became – obvious that the lake was going to be the one thing that really took care of us when i say us i had a rv driver that uh was along for the entire thing a guy named jared harkin great friend amazing how he stuck with me for the whole adventure but 
uh, it ended up, I don't know if it still is the case, but it ended up being the hottest summer in 50 years or Chicago history. I think 30 of the 40 days, it was over 90 degrees and, um, plenty of those days on the asphalt. I think the first day we started, uh, Memorial day, there were parts in Chicago. My buddy was on a bike and I think his bike thermometer read like 118. It was just (laughs) wicked. And so, uh, it didn't take long to like, was like, I can't eat. I'm so hot. This sucks. How am I going to try to get even close to my 6,000, 6,500 calories a day? And, uh, for no real reason other than I just didn't want to be hot. I jumped into the lake and Lake Michigan, even in the middle or close to the summertime is just a giant body of water. So it was freaking cold, man. Yeah. And, uh, but the moment I got out of that water, I was just voracious and I was like, that's it. Like I'm, I'm not eating because my body temperature is so high, but now with the lake here, you know, I can, at the end of the day, it became my ice bath at the middle of the day. It became the thing that would allow me to, uh, cool off. And, and so, uh, and those times when you got away from the lake or there were trees between you and the lake, whatever the temperature was, it went up 10 degrees because, you didn't have that lake breeze so far from it. The lake was the thing that you always were just so grateful to have. Yeah. That's not to say there weren't times that I would have been just as happy if it would have been a 500 mile lake instead of a thousand mile lake. Yeah. But I was never, I was never custom the lake because it became a, it became a partner in crime, a bit of a lifeline. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, I'm not, before we get into, I did rod too. I, I got to ask about running across Iowa. What was the route you took? I went from Council Bluffs on the west side uh, to Muscatine, Iowa. Yes. On the east. Sorry. <laughs> That's where I'm from. That's your, <laughs> ah, perfect. So I think we talked about this, that uh, we're not far from each other because I grew up uh, in Burlington and then ended up graduating from high school from Minneapolis. So I was only that you rocks. Know, 40 miles you know, 40 miles south of you, yeah. Uh, whatever it is there on Highway 61. And so uh, it was a pretty, it was a pretty uh, straight shot for the most part. Um, I was either just a little bit north of I-80 or towards the end, a little bit south of I-80. And, you know, it was between 24 and 31 miles a day. And that was really, that was really the first big, at least for me, big, uh, big swing that, adventure and and raise money for people in the cancer fight yeah yeah so when you get to like day nine of one of those what what's going through your mind like the morning of day nine are you is it just routine like automatic at that point or is does it get like exponentially harder that's a perfect question by there were a lot of things i learned on that journey that still served me in adventure and really in life to this day and that's been, I think we did that in 2006. Uh, I'm not sure if it's because I'm getting older because my brain hasn't completely thawed yet, but boy, I don't recall things as well as I once did. Uh, but by, by nine, day nine, things had gotten really simple, really quiet. And my, 
temper tantrums and my mind trying to stop me, trying to keep me safe, having that revolt. That happened on day six. And once I was able to hold on through that, then it seemed that the mind switched and said, all right, if we can't stop him, let's join him. Yeah. And it, and it, and it, and it allowed everything to kind of harness and flow. And so by day nine, you know, I was just in this really sweet spot place that I look for in, in, in any adventure and really just in my life in general, where, um, what's really important, that stuff gets in stuff you see on the news, a lot of the periphery BS that just doesn't get in and doing a run like that, doing an adventure like that, anybody that's been out for multiple days or is deep in a meditation practice, they know that space. They know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, then I'd encourage you to, to get after something that's beyond what you really think you can do, because there's some really juicy stuff out there that you'll find out about yourself and, and some things kind of like layers of the onion that you'll peel away, find unnecessary and never pick up again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it is, it seems like you do have to, you have that internal battle though. Like you have that day six talking, trying to like overcome all the excuses you're making in that moment. And it's just kind of like something you have to go through because you don't, you kind of almost have to earn that feeling of contentment. Um, at least from my experience, you have to, it's, it's, it's a rule. Yeah. There's, uh, everybody has their own governor and, uh, and it's, it's there to keep us safe. Whether or not it serves us, we can debate that, but everybody has it. So if you're trying to start a new business, you've got this governor and at some point it's going to say, you know what? you should just go back to your freaking cubicle and collect your check every Friday because that's safe. We don't know when our next paycheck's coming or you're taking, you know, you've just had your first child and now it's the 10th night in a row you haven't slept and they're screaming and all of that. And it says, what the hell were you thinking? Like you used to be able to, you know? And so there's all of these things, but whether it's those scenarios or whether it's trying to run across Iowa or it's trying to do your first 5K in Manitou Springs and you're a mile and a half in and your whole body is screaming because it's a brand new experience. It's the same. It's yeah. all the same experience. And if you can hold on and realize what is really going on, then you can break through to the other side. And then you've just created, you've just moved your governor, if you will. And so you've created a new possible for yourself, a new finish line for yourself, which becomes a new start line. And now for me, that becomes addictive because then I say, if, if I, if I'm capable of this, how far can I take it? How great a Steve cannon can I become? Yeah. Well, and that ties in seemingly to your website is expand your possible. And I feel, you know, after hearing you say that, I, I, I mean, when I asked the question, I was thinking like, man, well, I guess I've never done a, you know, an 11 day event running across Iowa or 26 days like the Iditarod, which we'll get to, but I've had that experience and that breakthrough. So you're 100% right. Like it can happen in a 5k. It's really just doing something outside your comfort zone 
And if you stick with it, you realize that you can push further. That's it, dude. That's the, I mean, you're giving me goosebumps once we start talking <laughs> about this stuff because, yeah. because, because it's, it's a shared experience and you hear so much once you've done something like going around Lake Michigan or Iowa or now the Iditarod where someone will say, I'm not a runner like you. And you get, there's this comparison space, which is just so limiting and so debilitating. And I share with everybody, like, there was no four-hour marathon. There was no five-hour marathon. In some days, I got out of the RV at six, seven, eight in the morning. And whether it be because I had to take a nap or because I had to eat or because I just had to sit down and cry for a half hour, there were sometimes I was still on my feet at 10 o'clock at night, just figuring out a way to get through that day. So uh, when, when you can realize that the journey is identical, if you're doing your first 5K, you're going to go through the same thing that I went through on day six across Iowa or day, you know, 13 around Lake Michigan yeah. or almost daily on the Iditarod, <laughs> but we can, but we're talking, we're talking the same thing. Your yeah. breakthrough is no less than mine. The guys that just went solo across Antarctica, their breakthroughs were no greater than mine. They're the exact same thing. So it's, it's great when people are just pushing that envelope and it doesn't matter how big the envelope is. If you're pushing it, then you're part of my tribe. I'm part of your tribe and let's cheer each other on. Yeah, definitely, man. That's perfect. Like way to summarize that for sure. Um, and I think that's also like hearing you talk about it with that kind of passion. I, I hope my hope is that it draws people to go out and get after it themselves, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's yeah. for me. I ask people whenever I'm fortunate enough to chat, what's your one thing? Don't be a jack of all trades. Pick one thing and give it your all. And, and in doing that, you will learn steps. You'll learn things about yourself that you can then apply to everything else in your life and master those things. But I feel like you have to get off the couch. Yeah. You, have to, you have to go push yourself whatever that thing is. And the size of it makes no freaking difference. It's just, if it scares you and you have to face down your own demons, then we, we both took the exact same journey. One might take a little longer, a little shorter, but it's still the same journey. So that's, for me, that's the, that's the real juice. And you know, why I'm able to do those things is because I've had mentors that recognize that and get excited about it because I'd be just excited talking to you about your first 5k is if you were talking to me about climbing Everest last year, it doesn't matter to me. As long as you're like, that scared me. I had to dig deep. I wanted to quit. Those are all the kind of things where it just sets my radar off. And I'm like, all right, tell me more. Yeah. How'd you do it? What can I, what can I learn from you? Yeah. Well, it's funny, man. Like I realized this whole this whole idea I realized when my daughter, my at, at the time she was like four and she did her first trail race and it was like maybe a mile and a half at the, at this park near Golden 
And it was so funny because she experienced the same thing that I'll experience in an ultra marathon. She experienced those same ups and downs in that mile and a half. And I was like, wow, like this is a universal thing for any of these. (laughs) It is. And that's so great because I feel like that helps all of us get started. Yeah. Because you don't, you can get into that comparison space and you think, oh, I can't run a seven minute mile like my buddy John or my girlfriend Susie. I'm probably lucky if I can even do 12 minutes, 15. So you don't even freaking start. But if you realize that that's not the thing, because there's always somebody faster, if we all took that attitude, none of us would do anything. If you're like, well, I was going to start a business, but I don't think I can be the next Steve Jobs or the next <laughs> Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. Like nothing would ever get freaking done, you know? Exactly. So that, your story is exactly perfect. It is universal. Yeah, man. Well, dude, I so going from that into the Iditarod, um, when I heard – well, first of all, I think the Iditarod is such an iconic race in the United States. And, you know, of course, like the classic way is the dog sled, but it's, it's a race. Like even today I asked my seventh graders, I was like, Hey, who here has heard of the Iditarod and about half of them raised their hands. And so when I think about my perception of adventure, when I was young, it was something like the Iditarod. It was that kind of like wilderness going through that wilderness in Alaska in my mind, for whatever reason, is like the definition of an adventure. I would, I would agree. I'm just barely able to start grasping it. And, (laughs) you know, I, I put, I put all my eggs into, into this basket, man. I, I moved to Fairbanks last year in the winter away from all my friends and family into a cabin outside of town so I could learn this game and, and uh, learn from the people that call that place home. So I could hopefully be able to finish the 350 with a little part of me thinking, man, I wonder if just someday, and what a great question, like what if, just brings everything, all kinds of great thoughts and emotions. I thought, what if, you know, I can get through the 350. And so I was able to last year and, and uh, I smoothed the race directors as much as I could. And I tried to handle myself to the very best of my ability so that they would see and hear good things about me on the trail. And, and uh, because they don't, even if you finish the 350, they don't have to let you into the thousand because they know how challenging and dangerous it can be. And I sent my application in and uh, they accepted me into it. And, you know, like any great challenge, I mean, immediately when they said yes, I was like, yes, holy shit, what have I just done? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, and again, I, I stall out talking about it because even living there two winters in a row, it was so much bigger than I could have ever freaking imagined, dude. It's just, it's, it's, it is, it is iconic and, and it is 
for fat biking or for the people that do it on their feet, at least in winter racing, it, it has no, it has no parallel uh, for fat biking. It is, it's the Super Bowl and holy hell, especially on the Southern route, man, it is as rugged and as exposed as you can be. Yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit about your preparation and really like, I don't know much. I know that people bike the Iditarod and that sounds so amazing to me. And that's about, that's about it. (laughs) So how many people are in this race doing the bike and are you leaving? You're not leaving the same time as the dog sledders, right? Yeah, you're correct. So we leave one week before the dogs. And it's super cool because somewhere in the middle of our race, the dogs run you down and you get to, you get to share space with these amazing athletes, both canine and human. Yeah. And, uh, and it's great because you get some company. It gets really alone out there or it can, I wanted to spend as much of the race as I could by myself. Uh, but there were 27 bikers signed up. I believe 17 showed up and 12 finished. Okay. Uh, but like out on, out, out on the trail, but, you're not, you're not seeing most of these guys. Like how often are you seeing another biker? A lot of times bikers will pair up okay. uh, for different reasons. You'd have to ask them why. Um, but I have a pretty good reason. It can be camaraderie, safety, yeah. uh, all of those different things. But, uh, you know, by the time we left McGrath, which is the end of the 350 race, at that point, it starts to spread out pretty damn quick. So I would say I went, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 days without seeing another human being until the dogs came through or, um, you know, you get to a village, which would be anywhere from 40 to 120 miles depending on the section so that was that was great but there were moments when things would get pretty sideways or dangers would show up that you weren't expecting or that have never happened before when you did think hey, it'd be kind of nice to have a, <laughs> a buddy out here right now yeah what kind of dangers like what are the most what are the kind of most like intimidating factors involved with the Iditarod? Well, Mother Nature is always first and foremost because, in difference to what most people would think, the really cold temperatures are not the thing that we worry about. As a matter of fact, we look forward to them because it freezes the trail, it makes the trail very immune to other forms of traffic meaning if snow machines, which is what they call snowmobiles, come roaring through, they really don't have any effect on the trail. If it gets warmer, the trail gets softer, and 
a snow machine or two comes through and they turn it into mashed potatoes and you know you you go from riding your bike five miles an hour to pushing your bike for the next 45 miles and mentally mentally that becomes uh, a pretty unique battle you have to have with yourself but on the flip side there were a couple different ground blizzards which the wind can pick up and it doesn't have to be snowing it just starts whipping the snow around visibility goes to hell you can't really see or it starts to drift the trail shut and when you're out there by yourself I've spent a lot of time in Alaska. Those those windstorms scare the living hell out of me. They you can't really describe them very well. I've been in one where it's so intense that you can't even see the trail in front of you. If you've got somebody with you, you could yell at the top of your lungs. They wouldn't be able to hear you. And you try to just the trail is only about four foot wide. And so when those storms come, if you happen to step off the trail the snow on either side is completely unpacked so you'll go clear into your hip wow and uh, and then you have to throw your bike back on the trail and dig yourself they're just really intimidating so the weather is always you know mother nature is undefeated if she wants to stop you she's going to stop you and you have to have the skills to wait it out and uh, you know fight another day and but this year it got warm uh, unseasonably warm in the 30s on the southern route you spend about 120 miles on the Yukon River the river was literally melting underneath our feet there were times you'd see open water and you're just wondering whether or not the next step is going to be the one you punch through the river and go in yeah did that uh, did that ever happen yeah. that's honestly I was thinking about it today because I knew there was that section on the Yukon River and I was talking to a coworker about just like that part seems scary to me because you're on a body of water. Like, did you ever punch through or you just kind of like have to deal with a constant worry on that section? Never completely through, but you, you would have times where you would see whether it be from the dog sleds or bikers ahead of you the day before, whatever the case, where there was slush, you know, anywhere from three inches deep to a foot deep. And again, you can't, you can't totally go around it because the the snow that is there, you'll just, you'll just, it's just deep. And so uh, nobody fortunately went through a good friend of mine two years ago punched all the way through, not in that same section, but uh, barely got out with his life. So it's happened. Uh, and we joke all the time, you know, the, you tell your kids the boogeyman isn't real, but when you're home by yourself and something goes bump in the night, it sure as hell is a lot more real than it was when uh, your kid was complaining about it. And, and that's the same thing. You know, once, once you look two feet to your left and you can see through the you can see through the river and see flowing water. You can't help but think for the next 48 hours while you're on that river, anytime that your foot kind of goes creek that, you know, you and your bike are going through. So that's pretty damn scary because you know, it's a possibility. We were on a section of sea ice going into a small village of Koya, me and a buddy, he was about four miles ahead of us, ahead of me. And 
for the first time any villager could ever remember almost a month earlier than it's ever happened before a grizzly bear was out on the sea ice and the only reason a grizzly bear is up is because his fat stores are out and he's hungry and so there were uh me one other biker and some seals and uh, you know a hungry grizzly bear is willing to take some chances and fortunately for us there was a local snowmobiler who heard there was a uh, grizzly out and about and he came out with this high-powered rifle and chased this thing away but it got within three four hundred meters of the guy that was 300 you know a few miles ahead of me and wow. uh so again you know you know that the guy chased the grizzly off but i mean we're going three four miles an hour at, at best in that section and a lot of it we were walking so you know it gets dark you can't see i don't know i'm not mentally strong enough to completely block out the fact that there's a damn good chance that there's a grizzly within 10 miles of me that's really hungry so there were some things like that that yeah. uh you don't really bargain for it makes for good stories but when you're out there uh i'd have been fine without having to being able to tell that story yeah exactly it's kind of one of those things where you know <laughs> during the moment you're like i wish i could get through this race and just be like everything went completely great yeah it was fine <laughs> yeah but yeah, yeah man, you know, there was, that sounds nuts. Yeah, it was. It was. What? So I hear the moose. Like I, I, uh, I hear that the moose on the trail kind of caused a lot of issues as well. Like, was that your experience too, or or not? They're the most dangerous critter in Alaska. Yeah. They kill. They kill more people by far than all the other predators combined. Um, um, you know, and they're they're not meat eaters. A mama moose is just a really ornery character and uh so they spend a lot of time in the pre-race meeting and this year there wasn't a ton of snow but years where there is a lot of snow moose are no different than humans they want to take the path of least resistance so they they spend time traveling primarily on the trails and um, it's not uncommon for that there's been racers that have had to turn back uh or you know, go a mile back and bivy and come back three hours later and hope that the moose is gone because uh, you just you just can't get too close to them. They'll, they're going to be faster than you. They're way taller than you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, moose are a real concern. You see their tracks everywhere this year. They weren't, uh, they weren't much of an issue because the snow wasn't real deep, so there weren't a lot of places on the trail where they were just spending all of their time traveling. So, didn't have to deal with them much this year yeah yeah what about can you kind of like try to describe what the mountain passes are like you said the first kind of like southern section is is very there's some sketchy parts well you uh you go through rainy pass which is uh the iconic pass probably of the entire trail it's about a hundred i don't know 50 miles in and again, Mother Nature holds the cards. This year, it was still nice and cold. We had a pretty uneventful trip up and into the pass and over the pass, and it's beautiful. It's a pretty big. It's a decent climb. You go from basically sea levels of 3,000 feet, so it's a pretty good gain. But it was pretty uneventful. And then the other side, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because of the prevailing winds or whatever the case, but the trail is normally bomber on the other side, so you usually have this 
incredible descent down through the Dalzell Gorge to the next checkpoint. But last year, uh, we got, we hit it in the middle of a blizzard and it was one of those one step at a time, complete fist fights. Wow. This year it probably took three years to cover it. Last year it probably took eight. You couldn't see anything. You got to the top and all you wanted to do is just get the hell off the thing. And, and this year it was bluebird skies and you were taking pictures and felt like you might as well be on top of Everest. It was phenomenal. Uh, and then the section I was chatting with you about that's, that's sketchy is just about mile 400 because the southern villages, there's a southern route and a northern route. And each, you take the northern route for two years, then they take the southern route for two years. So you basically have this straight line trail that goes for 350 to 400 miles. And then the trail goes 90 degrees left or 90 degrees right, forms a big square and comes back to itself. And then you go on your way to, uh, to Nome. So there's kind of this three, 400 miles section where, you know, you go south or you go north. And the northern villages are really well inhabited. So the trail uh, is typically in really good shape because it's just got traffic year round. The southern villages, many of them, especially in the early sections of the southern route, are old gold bus uh, villages. No one's there. They're uninhabited. They're completely broke down. And so until the trail breakers for the sled dogs come through, there's just no trail. I mean, it's marked, but you're just going to end up walking. And, uh, and so that's sketchy just because this year it was really warm. Um, so that even when the trail breakers came through and laid in the trail, it wasn't getting to that 10, 15, 20 degree mark overnight to where the trail would really free. That's just, that's just the sketchy part of the trail where the trail breakers came through and, and uh, after a couple hours, the trail started to set up and um, you're thinking you're going to get to ride Iditarod, which is 40 miles away. And uh, then a snowmobile came through and turned the trail upside down. And uh, I had to push my bike the remaining 37 miles it took me two days there was a there was a there was a section just before i did a rod that was so gnarly it was 14 miles it took me almost eight hours wow uh and then you know it's just big country man then later on um uh, around mile 700 you end up climbing back up into a up over a pass called little mckinley and we hit it just right it was beautiful sunny you're way up above tree line it's spectacular you push your bike for miles to get up there but you know that's that's part of the thing on at least on the southern route depending on how it all goes you're going to push your bike 100 miles on a good year you might push it 200 on a on an ornery year um and that's just, that's just the way it goes. So by that point, you know, when you have to get off your bike, you just don't give a shit anymore. Your mind's already given into the fact that that's just part of the deal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but it was beautiful, spectacular, daunting because it's so big, wolf tracks all around. Uh, so, again, to your point earlier, it's, it's a real freaking adventure, mentally, spiritually, physically. It's um, that race. 
will find your weakness eventually because you're just out there too long to be able to hide forever. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I'm curious to hear, um, a bit about like the ups and downs. Did you have like a moment that you, that really sticks out as like a really high, high or a really low, low, any of those kind of things? Here's what it's like, dude. Especially after McGrath, because that first 300 some miles, the trail is typically really well used. It's typically pretty cold. So you travel at a pretty consistent pace. But after McGrath, imagine the very best moment of your life and imagine the very worst moment of your life (laughs) and having to deal with that maybe five or ten times every day. Yeah. Just like this roller coaster of emotions kind of thing. Roller coaster. The weather can change on a in an instant, unexplainably so. Where it's sunny one minute and the next minute you are pedal to the metal because the wind just kicked up and now the trail's blowing shut. And if you don't get through this five mile section in the next thirty minutes you're going to be pushing your bike through two foot snow drifts. And 30 minutes later, you were whistling Dixie because it was almost no breeze, bluebird sky, and the trail's nice for the first time in three days. And so it just literally, that just never stops. And so you have to figure out how you're going to navigate it. Are you going to, are you going to allow yourself the euphoria of those moments? Because if you allow yourself that, you also allow the desperation that can come the very next moment. Or do you just eventually callous yourself to where there is no good and there is no bad. There's just forward. Yeah. How long does that take to form that callous? Depends who you are. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Depends who you are, depends how much of it, how much adventuring you've done. This this particular event, I don't know. I'm probably still fresh enough from it, I would exaggerate. But yeah. I don't think it's fifty fifty I don't think it's fifty fifty mental and physical. I think I think the, the mental spiritual is uh, require requirement is is far, far higher. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your, and your ability to take care of yourself. The, I, I would, I would say every single person that shows up to that start line has the ability to finish. And I would actually just say that about life in general, a hundred percent of the people have the ability to accomplish whatever it is they want to accomplish in life. Now, whether or not they do it, that's a completely different situation. But same thing on the Iditarod. Everybody that shows up on that line has the ability. It's just a matter of have they put the time in, the work in, and when they get punched in the face, do they have the skills, whether it be needing to bivy, needing to set up camp really quick, 
keep their shit together, make a meal, just whatever the case requires. Um, because it's just, it's, it's just such a freaking roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. How did you handle the extreme isolation where it's like, not only are you not talking to other people, but it's like, there's probably not another person for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. It makes me smile when you ask because it's the journey and it's the challenge I most love. Yeah. And it's the, it's the reason going out there that even right off the start, I was putting myself in position. I didn't want to be chatting. I didn't want to be talking, going down uh, the trail. I want to find out who I am and I want to expose those weaknesses and inadequacies in my character so that I can let them go or I can resolve them. And, and so certainly there were times that I would have rather turned them off. But if you put yourself in that position, you don't get that option. You have to deal with it. You have to figure out a way. And I welcome it. It's, it's, it's the, how many times do we really truly get the opportunity to be alone and get to know who this person really is? And I'm big into meditation a large part of my life i follow a lot of different people that are on that path in all of these adventuring and there's a quote i love which is if you're what how do they say it exactly oh my gosh i can't believe it's my favorite quote this is how i always do quotes i do it the same exact way (laughs) yeah i've uh you know if you're not uh if you're not happy being by yourself, then you're in bad company. It's, <laughs> it's that sort of, it's, it's that sort of thing. Like, yeah. um, how can, how can you be happy in your life if you're not happy with yourself? And so I want to spend time in that, in that space, uh, as long as I can. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different tricks and tools and things I developed to, to deal with that, to stay in the moment and, man, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast to go through those, those type of things over, you know, years and hours and hours of putting yourself in those situations to where, how do you persevere? But it's a, it's a space I, it's a space I really look to find because I think most people would be really surprised at the answer if they said, when's the last time I really spent time just with me, yeah. no input, no emails, no texts. I, I think most people would be really surprised and, and hopefully awakened a bit by the answer they got and would seek out even just an hour. I bet if you ask 10 people, when's the last time you spent an hour completely isolated? I bet there'd be a lot of times, 10 out of 10, the people would say, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's such, that's why that question about isolation and that whole topic is so fascinating to me because 
it's so outside of the human experience usually you know it is it is and it's what it's what will break most people in these events yeah is because the, the mind is used to a certain amount of stimulus every single day consciously or unconsciously you think about it people looking at their phone all the time that's a direct reason for that is because the mind is accustomed to always having something to look at so yep. five seconds ten seconds one minute picking up my phone why because my mind is addicted to it it's got to have the input and that really becomes the revolt i think that happens for me whether it be you know, day six across Iowa or day 13 around Lake Michigan or day 17 or 20 on uh, the Iditarod is at some point your mind is starving. It's yeah. begging for input. And if eventually you just don't pay attention to the baby screaming in the corner, it'll go to sleep. I'm laughing because I have, a, we just have a newborn. So. <laughs> So that, yeah. that and, totally and, makes you know, sense to not, me. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not a hundred percent so much with a kid, you know, you're not just going <laughs> to let it sit there and, you know, scream forever. But a lot of times, you know, you do let a baby cry itself to yeah. sleep. Yeah. And if you, if, if you pick it up every 30 seconds when it cries, guess what? That's a great analogy to the phone thing. Cause you're 100% right. I mean, yeah, you have this opportunity to entertain yourself 24 seven all the time and I've done it like I'm guilty as it as probably the next person you know but I've also not to the extent that you have but I've had the experience of that alone time with myself and honestly when after I do some sort of an adventure whether that's like an ultra run or like a long hike or something like that's what I come back to that's what like draws me in to have another adventure is because I'm like oh man that was cool you like you put time aside to be like in quiet solitude with yourself and look how much you learned about yourself. And then, you know, I like ride that high for a few weeks or whatever. And then I'm like, Oh, I need that again. You know, it's a, it's a freaking addiction, dude. And, <laughs> uh, it's amazing. It's amazing to watch it because you will get back in your car and go all the way back home for no good reason, you don't have to have your phone, but you'll go to great lengths to make sure that thing's with you and then go on an adventure and be without it or you don't watch the news for a week or you're not around the water cooler while everybody's gossiping around everybody else and you cut that off long enough and the thing that you once felt addicted to, when you come back from the adventure, it almost makes you sick. Like you don't, you have no time for it because you've broken yourself of it and you've started to spend this time just with yourself and it becomes this really beautiful space. And then coming back from those adventures, I guess you would say the, you've had the exact same experience because everybody I've talked to does. You come back and the first time that the TV or you know the 47 thing about whatever president it is shows up on the TV and you're just like, I did not miss yeah. that. Yeah. But literally, the first the first day of your adventure, you can feel your mind yearning for it. So it is. It's a freaking addiction, and it 
it keeps us from ourselves. It keeps us from really taking the journey inside. And it's the thing, like you said before, if people, you really invite people to take even that 5K, because there will be, even in that 5K, some place in there where if you reflect back on it, you're like, oh, I didn't think about this or that or work or email. It might have only been 15 seconds because the rest of the time, my feet hurt, my lungs wanted to explode, yeah. my eyes were bleeding. But there was that spot and you're like, oh, that felt good. Yeah, for sure. And that more and the than... Bigger, the that, bigger the... the Yeah. No, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, the bigger, as you continue to expand into the 10K and then the, the half marathon or, you know, instead of just going bouldering for an hour, it becomes a weekend trip and you're in El Dorado Canyon. Or instead of it being around Lake Michigan, it becomes the Iditarod. You, you then start to expand and it's not a 10 second window anymore. It's not a one minute interval anymore. Now it becomes by the end of Lake Michigan, man, that was a special thing because I didn't have all of the, that there was nothing going to kill me. There was nothing going to eat me. I wasn't going to fall through the ice. That, that journey especially became this incredible meditative space where by the end, after 40 days, 1,037 miles, if somebody would have been there from trail runner magazine and been like, you know what, here's five grand, go knock off another lake. I would have just, I wouldn't have even batted an eye. I would have been like, great. Let's just make it 20 grand. I'll knock down all the lakes because I could do this every day. I wouldn't be going four hour marathons, but I was just in that space where the simplicity of life, the beauty of it all, just, I did not want to leave it, man. It was, it was, uh, it's sweet. So I think that's the real payoff in any adventure is the time you get to spend with yourself and the things you learn about yourself. Again, whether it's a 5k or going yeah. across Antarctica. Yeah. So when you got to the end of the Iditarod, did you have that same feeling? No. <laughs> what was your feeling at no. that point? Absolute relief. Yeah. I just wanted off the trail. I just wanted off the trail. What was different? I, All those other or, factors? Like you said, Lake Michigan was like yeah, relatively we, relaxing because you're not necessarily in danger. Yeah. So there was still the mental revolt with Lake Michigan because you're stripping all of the input away that you become accustomed to in your life. But once you got through that, then it was just tie your shoes, eat your feet, eat your food, take your nap. Yeah. Duffel, walk, run, go to sleep, repeat. And it just became this Nirvana. You know, it really became that Forrest Gump adventure where he just ran because he was running. And that was it. There wasn't any particular reason. And he just stopped because he felt like he was tired. <laughs> yeah. And there was no particular reason. That was that was it. But on the Iditarod, you eventually get, at, I eventually took the callous my mind approach to quote David Goggins and even a mile from the finish line, I would not allow myself 
to drop my guard and say I'm home free because I had done it a thousand times prior over the prior 10 days at some point or another, maybe not about the finish line, but about thinking, Oh, trail feels good. I'm going to be there in six hours. Yeah. And it was as if it was as if Alaska was my teacher. And every time I said that to myself, it would go, Nope. Hasn't learned the lesson yet. Bang. <laughs> yeah. I feel like life does Even that sometimes. Just life in general. It does. Yeah. It's like you haven't learned this lesson, so yeah. we're gonna throw it right back at you. You're in the same situation. Yeah. Like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> to the to the point where I was fifty miles from the end passing some Danish mushers that I became great friends with on the trail that were there just to do it as an adventure. A whole nother story. Great guys. And had the wind at my back. I was 25 miles from a cabin. And then the next day, 30 miles or so to Nome. And I went by those guys. They were making camp on the river and, you know, with my hand in the air and some wonderfully descriptive expletives. I was like, boys, I'm going to Nome. This thing is in the bag. <laughs> and and I went a mile or so further. There was a really big tailwind pushing me. And the route took a 90-degree left. And that tailwind became a crosswind. And I <laughs> pushed my bike I pushed my bike six, six to ten feet up this really steep embankment to get out of the river. And the trail was literally blowing shut in front of my eyes. Oh, my God. Giant storm blew in. I had to backtrack. Ended up sleeping on the river with the mushers. And that storm continued for about 30 hours and going through the mountains the next day in that storm, I came within an eyelash of pulling out my satellite phone and calling in a rescue. I was scared to death. And so it's a long answer to your question about how I felt at the finish. I was just like, you know, I was so mad at myself because I'd let myself once again, think I knew what was going to happen. And because I did, that let all kinds of emotions rage, like I'm home free, I might actually get this. And then when the door slammed shut, I'd let my guard down and now I was desperate. I was sad, I was scared. Had I just stayed focused when that storm hit, I would have still been in that space and I just would have done what was necessary. Uh, so literally, and I've talked to a couple people since, and their their feelings were similar. I don't know if it was that way for everybody, but at the, it's only now some 17, 18 days after the race that I'm really starting to remember and allow myself to be happy. Yeah. Wow, man. That's so crazy. I love everything about your story, your philosophy. Um, I would dude, I would be so honored to have you on the podcast again and just hear your ideas about, uh, like resiliency and enduring and all of that stuff. Um, like dig into like, kind of like the mindset there. Uh, yeah, I would, I would love that too, man. Cause that's really, you know, we talk about it all the time. This, this sort of stuff is whether it's me talking about it or me listening to it. Yeah. Uh, if it's, if it's your kind of thing, it's motivating. It makes you want to go do these things. 
but does it really give you the tools to accomplish them or what do you do you know when you get punched in the face yeah and so the stuff you're talking about is the real tool chest kind of things like oh this happened so i'm going to break out my hammer this happened <laughs> so i'm going to break out my chisel yeah this yeah. happened so i'm going to break you know i'll introduce you to uh i'll introduce you to the 26 different steves for the Iditarod and a thing I've kind of invented that I think everybody can use to create the perfect version of themselves for whatever that particular challenge is. Oh man, that'd be so, yeah, that would be so awesome. I would love that. Um, before like to kind of wrap up here, I have to ask, did you have the most epic ice beard of all time? Because I saw a picture and I was like, I don't know, like your beard had to have weighed eight or nine pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I still, I've, I've had a few questions since I've got back about when I'm going to, when I'm going to trim it. And you know, it, uh, it feels, it feels like, uh, it would be a bit traitorous. It, it took such good care of me to, yeah. to now be done with the race to, <laughs> to cut it off. She's like, uh, you know, thanks for saving me, but no, it, it was, um, I don't know if it was the greatest of all time, but there's a couple of those early nights when it got down to 20, 25 below. Uh, I think I could make the podium in an ice beard contest. It wasn't too bad. You might be able to do like an ice sculpture in it. You know, like someone just starts chiseling out like a dolphin or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love, I love it, man. I, it, it certainly, uh, it certainly freezes up and contrary to what most people would think it, it doesn't get cold. It's the exact opposite. It's this perfect insulating mechanism. And even in the summer, it's kind of crazy. It keeps the sun up your face and that's true. I'm much warmer. With, I'm much hotter without it than I am with it but it does it does propose it does cause a bit of a problem when you go inside when it's in full ice beard mode because it, it takes about i actually pack a scarf with me because if i go into a place <laughs> that has any kind of civility uh you know i would look down and there's this puddle forming on someone's floor and i'm you know i'm embarrassed because i've become this savage that has no social graces so i try to let it thaw <laughs> into my into my scarf now than just making this big puddle but um yeah or it you know it might take a couple minutes for it to thaw enough that i can really open my mouth enough to stuff half a pizza in it but still That's amazing. i uh i love it for its benefits and um yeah i'll uh I think it'd get honorable mention in a best beard contest anyway. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, thank you for, <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. Can you tell us where like kind of share your website? I know you've written a couple books, which I'm for sure checking out. Um, and like where people can follow your, your story on like social media. Yeah, man, that's great because, uh, let's just give away, you probably got about 8 million followers. So let's give away about 8 million books. So <laughs> if, if anybody really wants to, uh, if anybody really wants to learn a little bit about building their tool chest, whether it be becoming the greatest parent or getting off the couch, 5k or starting your own business or finding your own Iditarod. Uh, I give away my first book 40 days, which is about the run around Lake Michigan. So if you go to, 
expandyourpossible.com and click on our online store. Uh, you can have the ebook version of 40 days for free. And oh, sweet. That's unlimited. So anybody that listens to this, um, if you want to include it in your social media posts that, uh, yeah. you know, free book for whatever. Um, and then, you know, we have other things there, other books, uh, audio books, um, fun stuff like that, as well as you can relive the whole I did rot thing. I called in every single night. And so you can, uh, you can hear the rantings of a madman. If, uh, you can get as deep into it as you want, but that's awesome. Uh, it's simple. Go to, go to expandyourpossible.com, grab the free ebook and, and then shoot messages my way, man. This isn't a one way thing. Uh, you know, if it's somebody doing their first 5k, that gets me really jacked up and like we talked at the start you're part of my tribe now i'm part of your tribe i want to hear about what you're doing that is kicking ass because that's my fuel to you know to not sit on my laurels and and see what i can do next so i hope we can all you know back each other in this great life adventure heck yeah man steve thank you so much for coming on the show i you don't even know like this thrilled me to no end so thank you the same man we speak the same language we're both we're both trying to see just how far we can take this thing and that gets me jacked up too that's awesome well yeah man we'll have to have you back on i would really i would love that i'd love that and and hopefully everybody knows that not only was this a great interview but he did it with a six-week-old baby in his arms so that's the real talent here <laughs> thanks man <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up this week's episode of the Like a Bigfoot podcast. Steve, I mean, man, what more is there to say? You're just incredible. Uh, your ice beard was the most epic ice beard I've ever seen. I'm pretty sure you would have to take a chisel to get that out. And I think you could cool like a 12-pack of beer with that ice in your beard. So... <laughs> Um, thank you, man, for coming on the show. I hope, hope, hope we can do this again in the future. Uh, I would love to pick your brain about adventure and really the benefits of pushing yourself. And I love how we talked about even running a 5k. Cause I think sometimes people think ultra runners or ultra endurance athletes kind of like poo poo on the 5k or the short, shorter distance stuff. But man, let me tell you, I ran a 5k this weekend. It was the hardest however long it took me <laughs> it was like the hardest three miles that i've ran in months and so it's a whole different thing man and i think his point is just do something outside your comfort zone and i love like expand your possible that's the name of his website expand it what is your possible right now and think what your possible can be in a year from now just by kind of trying to push those boundaries, push those limits, see how far you can go, see if you can go a little bit further. And it's being the opposite of complacent. Now you're not complacent. Now you're not sitting on the couch. Now you're not, you know, binge watching Netflix, even though that's awesome sometimes. I've totally done that. But you're you're out there. You're actively seeking to push your boundaries. And that is what inspires me so much. I got done with this episode and I ran upstairs shaking and my wife and we joke all the time that after every, every recording every episode I run upstairs and I say that was the best one yet um but I ran upstairs and I was almost shaking like I was like let's go on an adventure right now like I'm packing my bags we're going up to the mountains and you know it's like eight o'clock at night on like a Tuesday or whenever we recorded this and my wife's like 
oh my God, this must be the best one ever. I'm like, it is. It was. Steve is just amazing. I want to go to Alaska immediately right now. Um, so I hope you felt that way after the show. I know, like I said, that's truly how I felt. I was so jazzed up for some sort of adventure or some sort of boundary pushing that, uh, that yeah, I, I hope. And it's it's sustained. Like over the last week and a half, ever since we recorded this episode, it's sustained in me and like, you know, that's what I like. That's what the message I want to put out to this world. And I think that's the method met- message Steve wants to put out too. So, all right guys. Um, I got interrupted for a second. That was my neighbors. They're, <laughs> they're thir- third graders doing a fun run. And I'm like, perfect, perfect for this message right now. Um, and I, it, I was donating and stuff like that to it. Uh, yeah, let's wrap it up. Um, check out Steve's books. I know I'm going to start reading them. Uh, I'll start with the free one because that's awesome that he's given that out for free because I think he really wants to spread his message. But I'm all in. He has a whole bunch of books. Um, there's one about, sorry, let me bring this up. There's one about kayaking called Upside Down in the Yukon River Adventure, Survival in the World's Longest Kayak Race. Uh, I mean, the guy's incredible. I don't know what else there is to say. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, just a heads up, next week, I'm really excited as well. We have a big, big episode um, with Rick Nealis, who is the race director of one of the biggest races in the United States, the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. And as someone who's heard about the race but has never ran it myself or been up there to experience it, I wanted to make sure I wasn't shortchanging people. Um, so I, I'm bringing on Phil Pinty, who's been a previous guest on the show, uh, as a co-host for that episode, Phil's ran the race five times. And it's all about this giant, like 30,000 people marathon. One of the biggest ones in the United States expanding and also doing a road 50 K putting on a road 50 K this year. So, uh, super cool episode. Um, come back next week for that one. Uh, and I hope you guys are enjoying what we're putting out over here. Um, I guess the biggest message, spread happiness, spread love, spread goodness. Um, because what's the alternative? The alternative is spreading negativity and, and no one wants that. I don't want that. So, uh, keep after it guys and we'll get back at you then. See ya.